Legends. But this week was TV Upfronts. Uh, I don't know if you know what that means, but there are a series of presentations that happen every year about this time in May where all of the major networks share their new shows for the fall. Okay, so if you're going to watch a show in September that's going to be new on ABC or CBS or whatever, you are right now, their writers and their casts are getting together to start filming those in order to have them ready. And so they put together the schedule, the network greenlights certain things, cancels certain things, and prepares uh, their schedule for advertisers so advertisers can start to decide who they're going to invest in in the fall. And right now the big um, trend is the reboot. So we're going to take a quick little game here. We'll just do it by raise of hands. I'm going to show you an old TV show, and you are going to tell me yes or no if you think it is being rebooted. Uh, if you are very specific, some of these are revivals, some of them are reboots, and some of them are just new seasons after a long time off. I'm, we're not going to get that picky. Okay, reboot just means are we getting this again or not? And uh, we'll, we'll play that game. All right, Roseanne, the famous comedy. Is it being rebooted? All right, this has been in the news. Everybody knows this one, right? Roseanne is back on ABC, just started a few months ago, and they have already renewed it for a second season. All right. Will and Grace, rebooted? Yeah, that's correct. Will and Grace is actually going to start a second season next year. They already started this year. The cast looks exactly the same. This is one of the wonders of Hollywood, right? 11 years later, somebody, everybody's face is still equally taut. I'm not sure exactly how that happened. Well, I do know how that happens. But, um, all right, Charmed. Yes, Charmed, they have reboot. New cast. I never watched, I'm getting old enough that they're now rebooting shows that I felt like I was too old to watch in the first place. And so, uh, yep, Char Charmed is done. Lost in Space. Lost in Space, Netflix. Apparently it's excellent too. I've heard that it's great. Okay, we have a lot of agreement. So it, it is good apparently. And there was also the movie, but this is a television reboot. DuckTales. Yeah, DuckTales is back too, okay? Brand new animation. Uh, Daniel Putty from Community is one of the ducks. Uh, David Tennant, who is Doctor Who and the Purple Man and Jessica Jones. He's uh, Scrooge McDuck. Uh, Arrested Development. May 29th, Season 5, Arrest Preston. I feel like we're on an island, brother. The Cottrells and the Borchers are big Arrested Development watchers, but yes. It is, it is back. They also recut, just so you know, they recut season four into traditional episodes. It doesn't make it better. It still stinks. But anyway, um, MacGyver. That's what MacGyver looks like now. He's got a little wispy in his hair. This is actually, I think, in its third season now on CBS. It's been back for a while. Uh, Party of Five. Yeah, Party of Five's coming back, too. That one's going to get rebooted. And uh, Murphy Brown. Yeah, if you haven't figured out the pattern, yeah, Murphy Brown's coming back, too. And then my favorite, uh, Magnum P.I. Yes, Magnum P.I. is returning. Not Tom Selleck this time, but... So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that the 80s stash is apparently now replaced by slight, slight goatee stubble, right? That's the, uh, the Facebook. All right, yeah, that was the trick. None of them are not getting rebooted because that's what they're doing now. Everything is coming back. And what I think is this shows you the desperation of TV people, right? These are shows that were dead on the table 10 years ago. 
And the best idea they have is, huh, let's try to bring it back. I mean, when they finished Murphy Brown, there was a reason why they finished Murphy Brown, right? People were kind of tired of it. And now, 15 years later, they're like, huh, let's do it again. Same cast, same premise. You know, they throw in a couple of modern political things and, hey, let's do it again. And they're trying to bring back to life something that's been dead for a while. Um, if we talk about our own lives, though, we can kind of do that, right? Maybe it's on a little thing like a diet that we've tried three times and we know it's not going to work. But we're like, hey, let's give it another run, right? Or maybe we've gone back to that dating website that always just seems to take our money but not help us. And hey, let's give it another go. Or maybe we're going to try to potty train that child one more time in the hope it'll actually stick this time. And sometimes our life, on the, yeah, not stick, that's true. Bad choice of words on the sticking on potty training. Um, this is, I mean, this is a thing though, right? Where we have these things in life where it feels like we're constantly trying to put new energy and new life into something that feels like a failed concept. And we're just over and over again kind of feeling like we're stuck. Um, we're going through these books of the Hebrew Bible that nobody ever spends any time looking at. And this week we're in Haggai. Again, you are forgiven if you did not know that Haggai was a book of the Bible, right? It's two chapters long. It's not one that we bring out all that often. And it's from a very um, unique time in Israel's history. It's like the book of Zechariah that we read last week, where it's a book about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. All the people who have been exiled to Babylon have come back to the promised land, have come back to Jerusalem and Judah, and they are trying to rebuild the society that had fallen apart. And so, in a way, they're trying to reboot a failed concept, right? They have all around them the ashes and the destruction of a civilization that was destroyed. And they're trying to start it back over again. And that's where we pick up um, in the book of Haggai. They, um, people are starting to rebuild their houses, right? Uh, Haggai comes in, and it's a little bit into this process. And all the people have returned to Jerusalem, and they're rebuilding their family homesteads, and they're rebuilding the palace, and they're trying to re-put in government and all this stuff. It is, it's kind of like after a hurricane, right? You've seen that heartbreaking footage after a big storm where people come back and their houses are all a shambles. The whole community has been destroyed, and they have to come back and try to build it up from the ground up. And that's exactly the world that Haggai lives in uh, when he starts prophesying. Haggai 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while, the ha while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the, all the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house. 
Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labors of your hands. Um, this is a very interesting passage, just so we're clear on what's going on. Uh, in the midst of this rebuilding, God sends this message, and he says, I've noticed that when you've been rebuilding your, com your community, the temple has been ignored. Your houses are going up at a pretty good little clip, but nobody has started work on the temple. Your businesses are being put back in order, but the temple is being ignored. And God says, I am not happy with this. This is not okay. This is not the way you should prioritize your time. And then he talks about the futility of everything they're doing, right? And that feels like the futility of our lives. That sentence, you work to earn wages and then you put them into a purse that has holes in it. Does your bank account feel that way sometimes? I know I worked last week and I know I got paid and yet this balance slip says I only have $40 left. How did that happen, right? So this is a place that many of us live, where we put in effort and toil and work, and it feels like we're just on the hamster wheel, when we're not going anywhere, we're not making any progress. And God here says, for these people in this situation, the reason you're not getting anywhere is because you're focused on yourselves and you're doing nothing in regards to my temple. Now this can feel, um, for some of us, this can feel a little selfish from God's perspective, right? If we had a, uh, a tornado through this neighborhood, I think most of us would probably start making sure that we had a roof over ourselves before we had a roof over the church building, right? That would be naturally the priority many of us would have. And so it gets kind of frustrating, like, God, what are you, what are you doing here? What's your point? Why is it that things um, have to be cared for with you first? And what God says is, I really should be your first priority. Now, if we get into the why of this, I think a lot of it would go to the way they got into this mess in the first place, right? I think God would say, do you remember why you went into exile? Do you remember why your society fell apart? It's because you were selfish. It's because you were idolatrous. It's because you put all your trust and all of your hope in yourselves or in these little statues we looked at a few weeks ago, these little um, Baal worshiping or Asherah or whoever. And he said all of that unfaithfulness, all of that self-reliance, all that stuff got you into this mess in the first place. Don't restart doing the same thing over again. Don't go back and rebuild your society on who you are and your own stuff. Trust me and go to me first. And the temple is really a symbol for the fact that God is still third, fourth, fifth, sixth priority on their list. And that is not okay with him. Uh, if it still makes you feel a little uncomfortable, let's, uh, I want to give you a, an example where Jesus says something very similar, right? Uh, this is a famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the storms rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man 
who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Every house um, has a foundation, right? This is something we know from basic uh, construction. You know when something new is coming in the neighborhood, when they start digging up the ground and pouring concrete for the foundation. And we know how important foundations are. If you uh, heard this week that there was a crack in the foundation of your house, just imagine the shivers, right, that go up and down your spine of, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And Jesus says that when you listen to his words, you're building a good foundation for your life. And when you ignore his words, it is a bad foundation. And eventually, the house built on his words will stand. Houses built on anything else eventually crumble. This is very much what Haggai is trying to tell the people. If you rebuild Jerusalem based on whatever you think is best, it is something that will again fall. But if you build it on the Lord and his values, you'll be able to stand. You'll be able to withstand time. Um, it's really important for us to think about this and kind of ask what kind of foundations do we use in our lives? What do we build our lives on? Um, I want to talk about a couple things I think we're tempted to use our foundation. Uh, one of them is success, okay, that we are perceived as being successful. And this is a really big deal. Um, I don't, in a way, I don't even want to talk about real success here. I want to talk about the perception of success. There are people in our world that are living in tremendous debt and are close to financially insolvent, but they look like they're, they're doing really well, right? Because they have worked to borrow enough money to have a house and a car and all the stuff in place that perceives the I'm successful, I'm a big shot, I'm doing well, when in reality they're not. I think we've seen that there are some rich celebrities that turn out not to be as rich of celebrities as we thought they were, right? Because they just are about giving off this ostentatious self that I'm so great at what I'm doing when they're really in shambles. And some people, that is the fundamental foundation of their life. I'm going to do whatever I need to do so that I get the respect I deserve. Uh, it's interesting when you uh, look at uh, organized crime, often it works this way too, right? It's like, I don't care if I do things illegal as long as I make money and I become a big shot. And I don't care who I have to hurt to get there. Sometimes it's that kind of that story. And so for some people, their lives are built on success. For some people, it's money, right? And that may feel like the same thing, but I'm talking about people now who actually make money. And sometimes those people aren't the most successful looking or they aren't the showiest with their wealth, but they do have lots of money. And the foundations of their life is making sure that they can take care of themselves and they have a great nest egg and they've got retirement and all this stuff. Jesus talks about this as building bigger barns, right? You get a big crop and you build a bigger barn to keep all those crops in so that you can hold on to that wealth at all costs. And for some people, literally the way that they function through every decision is how much money will this cost me or how much money will this make me? And they'll go through life making that the foundation of their life. Now we're going to get a little more difficult Family can be one of these foundations, too. There are some people that make every decision on their life based on what's best for my kids or what's best for my spouse. Uh, this can feel like a thing that I'm not supposed to say in church, but I want to explore this for a minute. 
your spouse may be wonderful. They are not God. Your kids may be wonderful, but they are not God. Your parents uh, may be wonderful, but they're not God. Boyfriend, girlfriend may be wonderful. They're not God. Uh, sometimes for some folks in their, who are single, the dream of getting married and having kids may be wonderful, but it is not God. And sometimes we make this mistake where we confuse God's bl- blessings for God himself, right? And this can be really dangerous with family because family generally is a really good, beautiful, God-given gift. But in the end, uh, if you say, I do everything I do because I want to do what's best for my kids, what's best for your kids is not to do everything you do for what's best for your kids. In the end, there is one creator of the universe that has wisdom and knowledge and capability, and you are not married to him, okay? I mean, you kind of are in a spiritual way. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, they, your spouse is ultimately a fellow servant of God. And there's times in life where it's like, you know, the family really wants to do this, but I don't think that's what God would have us to do. And the interesting thing is family can sometimes be the gateway to some of these other things, right? It is really easy to say, I do not live my life based on money. And so I am not going to make my decisions based on, you know, what's financially good for me. But then if we throw family in, you go, oh, I'll make my decisions based on making sure I can get enough money to put into the college fund to make sure that my kids can go to school, right? Like we sometimes use that as a backdoor. And ultimately, even our families have to come second to the will and the desires of God because he is the only one knowledgeable enough and wise enough to help us to not ruin our families. Families that worry only for themselves often kind of can become getting very unhealthy situations, right? There has to be some other kind of standards that we rise to. The reason I bring all this up is that it's very easy to think about how Jerusalem would build their city, right? This is a clip from um, SimCity. I played this as a kid. It didn't look this good when I played it as a kid. But SimCity, if you ever played it, right, it's this uh, town building game where you can build hospitals and you can build houses and you can build, um, you just be the mayor of the city who puts in stuff. And in real time, the, the buildings start to dilapidate and people come in and rent and people don't and the businesses grow and shrink and you're trying to create a society. And you're always challenged with what's my first priority to build next. Jerusalem is challenged with that in the time of Haggai. And what they do is they have all these foundations that they're going for. Some of them say, we need to make this town look big and beautiful and gorgeous and stick up our noses at the Babylonians. They thought they could crush us, but we're going to prove that our town is awesome. And so they're looking for success. They're looking for approval. They're looking for other people's uh, adoration. Some of them are quickly building up new businesses, right? They're planting their fields and they're creating vineyards and they're working on farms because they say, this is the ground level of a new building of Jerusalem. I can make money off of this. And so they're quickly putting all their investment into uh, crops and into business. Other of them are rebuilding their family homesteads. They said, my grandfather owned this piece of land and he had this and he had this and he had this. And we're going to rebuild this so my kids have the same opportunities that my great-great-grandparents had here in Jerusalem. And to all of those things, God says, no, me first. 
If you want to have a life that works, to put it in Jesus' works, if you want a house that will not be destroyed by the storms of life, God is the foundation of them. God's will, God's will and God's word and scripture and learning from what God desires for you is how you build that. Because when you build on everything else, it gets rickety. Um, the reality for some of us is that the other things we build our lives on can really metastasize on us and become something gross. Uh, if you are building your life on success, it results in vanity. And you are so full of yourself that nobody else likes you. Uh, if you are not careful, building on money turns you into an empty, greedy person who has no value in other things except for if they can earn another buck. Even if our family, if our families are at the center of that, without God, without the selflessness, without the teachings of Jesus, they become codependent or they become selfish or they become um, toxic. The environments um, where we can't even tell right for wrong anymore because what we're really worried about is what our spouse thinks about something, no matter how right or wrong our spouse is on something, right? Because occasionally your spouse is wrong, right? We don't want to admit it, but occasionally they sometimes don't make the right call. And in all of these things, God says, build my house first. Um, Jesus says this uh, in a very, wait, let me go to the scripture first. Uh, oh, no, no, no. This is where I want to be. Yes. Um, we talked about in Colossians, in our Bible study this last week, or two weeks ago, this idea that the Bible talks about how everything holds together in Jesus. That Jesus is sort of this cosmic glue that makes the universe work. And in the same way, I think in our lives and our priorities, we want that glue to be there to help hold our lives together so they don't spin out of control with the poor decisions that we often make when we're going on our own wisdom and our own knowledge. Uh, Haggai ends with this hopeful note from God. God says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. I didn't realize until I read these out loud. He repeats himself with Lord Almighty a lot, right? Like that phrase is just over and over. Haggai wants to make clear that it's God speaking through him. Um, basically what he says, God says is, I've got enough silver and gold to take care of your issues. Okay. I know that you're worried about rebuilding this place. And I know that you're worried about the economy. I know you're worried about your homes. I know you're worried about the government system. I know that rebuilding this is a major task and you're freaked out by it. And frankly, you're frustrated because stuff isn't working right now. If you put me first, I will clear the way, Right. I will approve your requests. I will give you the financial needs that you have to get this stuff going. I will make sure stuff works out, but we are going to make sure that your priorities are right. Because if I let you go with the wrong priorities, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Some of you have had the experience of sending kids off to college, right? And there's undoubtedly, I'm sure, this concern of how much you fund or don't fund them and I think you probably try to suss out exactly where their priorities are, right? If they call up, mom, dad, I need money so I can go out this weekend and have fun, you're like, 
hmm. They're like, Mom, Dad, I need money for books. Oh, okay, right? We kind of want to know if they're going to put their, their money in the right place. And God is kind of treating peop- the, the people of Israel here like children. He's saying, I'm wanting to see that you've got your heads in the right space and that you're going to uh, care about the right things and not continue in your same destructive behaviors. Jesus has a very similar way of saying this. Uh, Matthew 6, again, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, seek first the kingdom or the reign or the rule of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. This passage talks about uh, people praying for things like food and clothing and worried about the everyday issues in life. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Um, Serving me, all right, my righteousness, my will, the kingdom of God, God's rule in your life, that is a train that if you hop on, the final destination will be all the other stuff that you're worried about, right? But you got to get on that train first. If you try to walk your own way there, you will never get there. Seek the things that you know that I desire for you first. And when you do that, all the other stuff falls in line. The relationships that you're worried about, the money stuff you're worried about, the job stuff, the kids, the parents, the whatever you've got going on. Jesus says, seek first my rule in your life. Allow me to put the priorities in place. And when you do that, you'll be amazed how many other things click. All right. Um, yeah, that's it. That's the sermon. We do a Q&A at the uh, end of all of our sermons. And so uh, if you have any questions about Haggai, any questions about the Sermon on the Mount passages that I tried to pair up with Haggai to maybe make it a little more palpable for us, um, I would love your questions as we, we, we wrap up. Yeah, so that's really interesting. How do we navigate when uh, we're in a relationship with somebody of some kind and the way we look at money is different than the way they do? Um, I'll give a really funny example because it'll help us uh, maybe look at it a little more. Uh, my mom loves buying toys for my kids. Uh, we had our yard sale yesterday. If you're wondering why all the junk is in the foyer, it's because we had a big yard sale and we're going to give the rest of it to charity on Tuesday, right? You will find a lot of pieces of pink plastic in there that were purchased by my mother. And we're always like, Mom, can we just can we do something else? Can we do an experience? Can we do a subscription to something? I don't know. Anything other than more stuff. Um, and there's a couple things, I think, in that. Um, the first thing is there is a little give and take, I think, based on the way people express, um, express themselves emotionally. So there's really good material on, um, called the five love languages that people have different ways they express love. Gift giving is one of them, and that's like my mom. And so I allow more than I'm comfortable with, and there's more money going to those things that I'm comfortable with because I know that's her spiritual, not her, not, her, 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 her language of love. And so I try to make some space for it. That being said, the more close the partnership is, I think the more that you have to have conversations about what your baseline is, right? This is, um, this is controversial in a lot of settings, but people talk about Christians. Should people who follow Jesus marry people who aren't following Jesus? And I'm generally a pretty big fan of followers of Jesus marrying one another because, because I believe this, and I believe that, that God's, God's will is your foundation. And when your foundation is God's will and someone else's foundation is not, 
it leads to a really rickety house, right? Those foundations have different values and different sets, and that can be very hard. Um, in a business partnership, maybe you can survive that. Uh, with your families, this is why parents try to give their values to their children so the families can work as a cohesive unit. But particularly when we talk about like marriage and long, life, uh, long, lifelong partnerships, I always encourage people um, try to make sure that you've got a somewhat similar value system, right, and base. Because when you don't, that'll often become that'll just become the fault that you go to every time, and that can be very um, that can be very complicated. But a lot of it's just communication too, like. Um, Sometimes we want to, when we're working with somebody in some sort of situation, we want to not be too blunt, but sometimes it helps to go, listen, I don't like what's happening because I think that that value is too, that the value set that's leading to this is too focused on money and not on experience. And I find that kind of hollow. And then the other person goes, hollow? What do you mean hollow? Right? I mean, that's not going to be an easy discussion. But it allows you to at least get out like this is how we're this is where we really are different and like expose those differences. Does that help at all? Is that so generally the exile is, is put at about 70 years. So 586 is when the temple is destroyed and the Babylonians take them out. They return about 516. Now Haggai and Zechariah are in the midst of the rebuilding. They're not right at the front edge. So likely Haggai prophesies like 500, 490 BC or BCE, right? That's kind of the zone that we're talking about. Um, and as such, Haggai is one of the youngest books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, um, Haggai, Zechariah, those are all books about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So they're kind of in a clump together right around 500 BCE. And then next week we'll talk about Malachi. Malachi is even a little bit younger. He's like, uh, I'm gonna get this wrong off the top of my head, 380, 400, something like that. So, but yeah, there's the people that Haggai is speaking to, their grandparents were the last people that lived in the land before it was destroyed. Their parents, maybe even two generations, maybe even great grandparents, and their parents and grandparents lived in exile. And so they're, they're kind of returning home to a home that they've been told about in fairy tales that doesn't even exist anymore. There probably was some of that disappointment too. Great-grandfather says that our family's homestead looks like this, and then they show up and it's all charred and burned and the walls are ripped down, and they're like, oh, this is not what great-grandpa talked about, <laughs> you know? So there's some of that, I think, too. Any other questions?